Lord, we thank you that you are a God who loves every tribe and tongue and nation. And you sent your son, Jesus, to make it possible for men, women, and children from every tribe and tongue and nation to know Jesus and be gathered around your throne forever in worship and praise to the glory of your name. And Lord, thank you that in that great mission, that great plan, you've allowed us to play a part as your sons and daughters, as your ambassadors about the good news. And I want to thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our student ministry. Lord, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on our students. Lord, I praise you that this last Wednesday, eight students prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, praise you for the new life in the work of our students, Lord. And I pray also that those students who've said yes to you are saying yes to your mission. And I pray that you give Pastor Rob and this team the fullness of the Spirit to live into all that Christ has called them to on this trip. Lord, we certainly do pray for their safety. Uh, Take them there, bring them home safe and sound, Lord, but even more, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to embolden them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus in word and deed, not only as they go, but as they come back on mission with Jesus. And Lord, as we gather, we pray for the outpouring of your spirit to teach us your word. We cannot understand the scripture apart from you being our teacher. And so teach us, Lord, make us more like Christ as we bow before you in the study of your word. And Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen, Amen, church. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. As we said last week, our next verse-by-verse long-term study is going to be on the gospel of Mark. But we won't be starting that until next week. And in this meantime, between Daniel, that long-term series we just concluded a couple weeks ago in the book of Mark. Um, We've been teaching out of Philippians chapter 2 just as a bit of a precursor to the gospel of Mark. We see a beautiful picture of Jesus as our suffering servant who sacrificed his life to save us here in Philippians 2, which just so happens to be the theme of the gospel of Mark. We also will see That as we go to the gospel of Mark, one of the primary themes is that Jesus is inviting people to follow him, to follow him into his life, the example that he led, the life that he gave to us as our great God and Lord. And as he invites people in, he, he invites them into really participating in what he wants to do in this world. And so as we talk about following Jesus and living into the example, this text is also really important for us to understand as a foundational truth. And you'll understand more of what I mean, Lord willing, as we study. But as I came to this section in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to narrow down on just two verses, verses 12 and 13. And as I thought about these verses, I was reminded uh, about a figure of speech that I learned about several years ago. It's, it's used by entertainers and public speakers as a way to get the attention of their audience. And the figure of speech is called a paraprosdokian, a paraprosdokian. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but just in case you're not, let me tell you what it is. A paraprosdokian is a sentence or a phrase in which the second half is surprising or unexpected in a way that causes you then 
to go back and reinterpret the first half. Uh, Rather than give you the, the definition, let me give you a few examples. Groucho Mark said, I've had a perfectly wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. You see how that second half makes you go back and reinterpret the first half. Mark Twain said, giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world. I know because I've done it thousands of times. Winston Churchill said, we can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. He was just bitter because we won the war. Ronald Reagan, you know, I love my guy Ronnie, said this, Thomas Jefferson once said, we should never judge a president by his age, only by his works. And ever since he told me that, I stopped worrying. (laughs) Come on, man. I know you not love Ronnie. I think you get the drift. The reason I mention Paraprosdokians is that our text this morning is really the ultimate example of one. We're looking at just two verses of scripture, and we're definitely going to need the second half to go back and reinterpret the first part. So let's look at our text from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I think you'll see what I mean. Verse 12 says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see what I mean about the Paraprosdokians? Verse 12 is one of those often misunderstood, misused, misapplied verses of scripture, What happens is that people take verse 12 and they isolate it from verse 13 and then teach it to say that the Bible's telling us we have to work to earn our own salvation. That it's by our effort that we're saved from the penalty of sin in hell and from the power of sin in this life. But here's the problem. When you look at the rest of scripture, you find that the Bible paints a very different picture of our salvation. The biblical picture of salvation is found in verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us. How? Well, not because of our works, works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6, just a few verses earlier from our text, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friend, the clear teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by the grace of of God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, his Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our work at all. God does the work of saving. God saves us from the penalty of our sin. God saves us from the power of our sin. And here's the good news. One day God is going to save us from the very presence of our sin by allowing us to live forever with him in heaven. God does the work of saving us. Church, who does the work of saving us? God does. Our part is simply to turn or repent from self and sin and look to Jesus in humble faith to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God saves us. 
We do not save ourselves. But the question you should then ask is, how does our text that tells us to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling reconcile with the Bible's teaching about salvation? Well, that's where my opening illustration comes in. We need the second part of these two verses to help us understand what we just read in verse 12. Look at verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You guys see the first word there in verse 13? I hope so, because I, I put it in bold italics and underlined it for you. It's the word for, right? That word is known as a causal conjunction. Don't you love when you come to church and you get an English lesson? It's called a causal conjunction. All right, it's a conjunction. You guys remember that? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Oh, yeah, that was a beautiful little phrase. The conjunction simply means that it joins two phrases or two sentences together. And it's causal because it shows you the cause for something. It's basically like the word because. Let me give you an illustration. I can't stand driving on Courtney Parkway because the traffic is a nightmare, right? Am I the only one who feels that way? No, you get it, right? I'm using the word because there to show the reason why I do or don't do or why I feel or don't feel the way that I do in the first part of the sentence. And guys, that's how verse 13 is given by the power of the Holy Spirit to help us understand verse 12. Paul is saying we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling Not because we have to do the work of saving ourselves, but because God is doing a work in us, a work that saves us. Salvation is already at work in you if you're trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So you aren't working to be saved. You're working because you're already saved. Our good works, let me say it this way, our good works don't cause our salvation Our salvation causes our good works. You want an illustration? Sure, I'll give you one. If you go to the gym to lift weights, like clearly I obviously do. This is a natural physique, I'm sure you're wondering. I'm blood tested, it's it's good. If you go to the gym to lift weights, you're going to build muscles, theoretically. You're, You're working to build muscles, right? You guys with me so far? Here's the story, though. You're not working to create muscles, right? You're actually working muscles you already have. You are born with muscles. God made you that way. Now, some of us have genetically been engineered to have a little bit fewer looking muscles than some others. But regardless, you already have muscles. You're born with them. You don't work out to create muscles. You work out because you already have muscles. Did you ever think of it this way? You couldn't work out if you didn't have muscles. So here's how it goes at the gym. See if you can follow me. You work out to develop muscle, but you're dependent on the muscles you already have to work out. Mind-blowing, right? Pretty simple concept, and that's how it works in our salvation. We are dependent on the saving grace of God already working within us to do the good works 
that accompany our salvation. And I want you to notice just how comprehensive that this is laid out for us in our text. How comprehensive is God's work in our salvation? Look at verse 13. It says that God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So first, God is at work in our will. God works in our will. The word will there means to have a want or a desire for something. You guys want to play a little game with me this morning? Cool. Because you know when I ask those kinds of questions, I never actually give you an option. I just do what I want anyhow. I'm wearing the microphone. So let's play my little game. I'm going to give you four things that I regularly do. Okay, so things that I do on a regular basis, and I'm going to give you a hint. I do all four of these things for the same reason. And here's what I want you to do. Listen to these four different things that I do on a regular basis and see if you can guess the reason I do them. You with me? All right, so here we go. I regularly eat ice cream. Maybe I should say I religiously eat ice cream. Every Sunday, I have a great big bowl. I regularly eat ice cream. Okay, so why would I do a thing like that? Just keep it to yourselves. Just think about it. I regularly eat ice cream. Here's another thing, though. I regularly listen to Garth Brooks. I'm just kidding. I've got an amen from the crowd. I do. I do. He's a Christian artist. Have you ever listened to Unanswered Prayers? His theology could not be more sound there. I regularly listen to Garth Brooks. I regularly eat ice cream. And if the stars align, I listen to Garth while I'm eating ice cream. And it's a perfect night. Here's the third thing, though, and this might put a wrench into what you think I'm, I'm doing here. I also regularly floss my teeth, right? Because I think ending my life with all my teeth is a really good life goal, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So I regularly floss my teeth, and then I regularly change the oil in all of my vehicles, okay? And I do all of those things for the same reason. Eat ice cream, listen to Garth, floss my teeth, change the oil, all of them for the same reason. Anybody have a guess why I do those things? Anyone? Well, hey, come on, bro. We got ourselves a winner on row three. There are no prizes around here, so I'm sorry to disappoint you. Here's why I do all those things. Because I want to. <laughs> I want to. At some level, I want to do all of those things, and it engages my will. My will desires to do those things. It's actually why I do everything that I do. I do what I do because I want to do it, and I'm not unique like that. You do what you want to do because at some level you want to do it. Even the things that you would say, I really don't want to do this, at some other level when you do it, it's because you, you found another reason that engaged your will to say, and still I will choose to do it. I want to do it at that level. Guys, that's why the things that are done to us that we don't want done to us, we say happened against our will. Everything that we do is an expression that starts in our hearts. And that's what verse 13 is telling us. It's telling us that if we are ever going to do the life, the things, the work that is pleasing to God, it will only happen as God does a work that changes our hearts. To change what we want, what we desire. God has to change our desires or we will never want what we should want, the way that we should want it. You see, our hearts have all been distorted by sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 say this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Guys, all of us have indwelling sin that has twisted the desires of our heart. We don't want what we should want the way that we should want it. So we don't do what we should do in a way that's pleasing to God. And even when we do the things that we should do, when we do them, the Bible teaches that sin is so ingrained in our hearts that it inevitably attaches itself to even our good works. That's why our good works are as filthy rags in the eyes of God when we do them by our own power. Because sin distorts it. We, we do an act of generosity. We help someone who's in need on the street. And no sooner have we done an act of generosity than sin grabs hold of our hearts. And we hope that someone sees us do that act of generosity and thinks highly of us. Or we hope that someone will pay us back. Or we hope that we can have some barter system where we did a good deed so God will now do a greater deed for us. You see, sin has distorted the desires of our hearts. So what do we need? We need grace. We need God to change our hearts. And guys, that's what this verse is saying God will do. When he saves us, God starts with our hearts. He starts with our desires. And like we saw last week, growing in maturity in our salvation is a process that happens over time. And so there may be changes that seem small at first as we are growing in Christ. But if our hearts are going to change, God has to do it, which means one of our deepest prayers, church, is Jesus change my heart. It's not just Jesus change what I do. It's Jesus change what I want. Help me desire. Help me want. Help me hunger and thirst for you and your kingdom. God has to work in our will or we'll never want what we should want the way we should want it. And then the second thing he says is that God has to work in our works. That's what verse 13 says. It's God who works in you to will and to work. That word work in verse 13 is different from the word work in verse 12. In verse 13, the Greek word is energeo. We have an English word that comes directly from that Greek word. You guys know what it is? How'd you guys know that? Oh, it's on the screen. Yeah. We have that word, energy, that describes a power that's at work in something, that energizes something. Guys, it literally means, in the original language of the Bible, to put one's capabilities into operation. To energize means to take your capability and put it into operation. And that word's used in verse 13 twice. The first time is referring to whose work. Who's the first one who's putting energy and capability into operation? Who? God. Now, now, what is God putting his energy and capability to work in? Us, our work. God's putting his capability into operation in us. In other words, he's giving us his ability to do what only he can do. Just think about that for a minute. God in the gospel, by the power of Jesus, is literally promising to give you his capability to live. He is is allowing you to participate in his very life. God is energizing the work of those who trust in Jesus. Think about a light bulb. A light bulb is designed to produce what? 
light. Man, you guys are really with it this morning. But light bulbs can't produce light on their own, can they? They need a power they don't have to produce what they're designed to produce. They have to be plugged in to a source of energy or power. They need something they don't have in themselves to produce what they were designed to produce. And that's how it is with us. You and I were designed by God to produce good works, but we can't produce good works by our own power. See, our sin has disconnected us from the power to do anything good. So not only has sin distorted our desires, sin has robbed us of power. We're separated from God. That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to come in this world and live in our place and die in our place so that our sin can be placed on Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. Christ came to the cross having lived a perfect life we've all failed to live. He died the death we deserve to die. And our sin was placed on Jesus at the cross. And the Bible teaches that not only was our sin placed on Jesus at the cross, but a miracle happens When you come to trust in Jesus by the power of God himself, you are united to Christ in the Holy Spirit. You're united to the work of Christ. You're united to the death of Christ. And you're united to the resurrection of Christ. That's how your sin can be paid for and forgiven. It's united to Christ at his cross. But that's also how you are able to live in a life that resembles the example of Jesus, because you're united to the resurrection power of Christ. And that's what verse 13 is saying. God has to do a work, and he graciously will, to produce the will and the work that pleases him. Once again, that's something the entire Bible teaches. And let me just give you some verses. Galatians 2.20, we talked about this last week. It says, I have been crucified with Christ because by faith you're united to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me, and the life I live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than them all, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Colossians 1.29, he said, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Philippians 1.6, just earlier, we already mentioned this, says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Friend, the clear teaching of the Bible is that God is the one who works in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit to produce the life that he's called us to live. It's all by God's grace. It's all through the work of Jesus as we trust in Christ. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. It's worth repeating. Christianity is not primarily about a work you do for Jesus. It's primarily a work that Jesus is promising to do in you. So if your Christianity centers around your work for God, then I want to encourage you to reconsider what you believe about Christianity. Is Christ, his power, his work, his grace at the center of your Christianity or is your work? The gospel is clear. 
Guys, and this text is the furthest thing from saying we work for our own salvation. God has to do it. So here's what we want to do with this beautiful passage. We don't want to rip verse 12 out of context, make it seem like we have to work to produce our own good works or our salvation. At the same time, we don't want to rip verse 13 out of context and make it seem like being saved means it doesn't matter how we lived. Because that's not what it's saying. Being saved by God means he is doing a work in us by his gracious power that's intended to work itself out of us in our obedience. And that gives us our big idea for this morning. Here's the big idea for this text. God is working in us a salvation that works out of us. Here's what I want us to do with the rest of our time. Having that foundation of truth in this text, I want to now look at the whole text and see what it is that he's saying in light of the truth of the gospel that's clearly presented here. And there are two practical implications for verses 12 and 13 for all of our lives. And here's the first one. God desires us to live in complete obedience to him. Complete obedience. Listen to verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Guys, do you see it there? When Paul talks about working out salvation or the outworking of our salvation, he equates it with obedience. See right there? Obey, work out your salvation. I want you to notice specifically what he says about obeying. He says they should obey when he's around. You see it there? Do you? He says obey when I'm there, in my presence. And he also says they should obey when he isn't around, right? You see it there? Guys, I got to tell you, I know I'm just a simple kid from Ohio. I grew up looking at a cornfield that was right there outside my front door. I might be a little oversimplifying this, but if they're supposed to obey when Paul is around and obey Jesus when Paul isn't around, then when should they obey Jesus? All the time. So then the question is this, when is it okay not to obey Jesus? Holy cow, you guys got it. I'm feeling good about my teaching. I might just stop right there. You got it. Here's what that means for us. Here's the practical implication. It means God is calling the people he saves by grace to a life of complete obedience to Jesus. We have to hear that. Because we're not hearing that everywhere. Guys, we are called to a life of complete obedience to Jesus all the time in everything we do. Obey Jesus when people are watching. Obey Jesus when no one is around. Always obey Jesus in everything. Obey Jesus no matter what. Obey Jesus. Church, I want to encourage you, beware of any so-called version of Christianity that is minimizing the importance of obedience to Jesus. Every word of Jesus. I'm seeing, and I got to tell you, I've got this Twitter account, and I, I don't know why I've got it. I never tweet anything. I don't have anything worth tweeting. 
But what I do is cruise through, and I don't know why I do it, but it's kind of like getting news from around the world. And I am increasingly seeing so-called famous teachers around our country who are going around peddling this version of Christianity that makes it seem like we aren't called to obey all of the Bible. Like there's this idea that There are passages known as clobber passages about sin, sexual sin, homosexuality, and they're minimized. Like, oh, I know those passages, and they don't apply now in this new idea of grace as though we're not called to always obey Jesus. Listen to me, friends. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ who isn't following the commands of Jesus... Let me ask, what makes you think that you're a follower of Jesus? Being a follower of Christ means we follow him into the life he is calling us to live. I don't know how it happened. Somewhere along the way, it seems like the American church stopped talking about simple obedience. People are talking constantly about trendy pop psychology, cultural things in the guise of Christianity. feels like we want seven tips on how to be a better parent or 10 steps to a healthy marriage or five principles for successful citizenship. Well, I got to tell you, I'm tempted to write a book. I think I might just write a book. It's going to be a book called The One Step Program by Titus Green. Subtitled, A Single, Time-Tested, God-Approved Approach to Life, Money-Back Guarantee. This will revolutionize your marriage, your parenting, your citizenship, the one-step program. You guys ready for it? Okay. It doesn't rhyme, so I hope that you can remember it. (laughs) Obey Jesus all the time. Shakaroo. It's only going to be one page. The rest of the book is going to be a list of books you don't need to read now because of my one-step program. Husbands, obey your wives. Oops. That was how I made up for last week because Jesus lives in her. Husbands, obey Jesus. And love your wives. Man, I got to tell you, I, like, I like, literally spread heresy out there. We'll cut that on the video by Tuesday. <laughs> wives, obey Jesus. And respect your husbands, parents. Obey Jesus and raise your children in the nurture and admonition of Christ. Children, obey Jesus and honor your mom and dad. Young adults, Obey Jesus and follow him into radical obedience. Church members, obey Jesus and all of his commands. Guys, I don't know if I've made it clear. Let me just say it in another way. If you want a life that God promises to bless, then do what Jesus says. Even if our world thinks you're crazy for doing it. And our, our text tells us that is such serious business that we should do it. And it says this, in fear and trembling. Why? Why should we fear and tremble as we think about obedience? Well, verse 12 starts with the word therefore. We need to see what it's there for. And that means we need to go back and consider what we just read in the verses ahead. And what did we just read? Verse 11 says this. 
Starting back in verse 9, we see, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, the day is coming when Jesus will be presented before every person who has ever lived, and on that day at his return, every knee will bow before Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. And on that day, our lives will be judged. The Lord of all will judge us all. And every word, every thought, every deed will be laid bare before our Lord and us as well. And the reality is this. Our lives will either show that we lived as though Jesus is our Lord or they will show that our lives were lived as though Jesus isn't our Lord. And that thought should cause holy fear and trembling in your heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, he says, There's no use in you giving me the lip service of saying I'm Lord if you don't live like I have the right to tell you how to live. So let me just ask you this. Are you living like Jesus is your Lord? Are you obeying him in every area of your life? And would you ask the Holy Spirit to show you the places in your heart and life today where you are not obedient to the call of Christ and repent? Turn to Jesus Call on God to change the desires of your heart by your grace and to fill you with his spirit to live in complete obedience to Jesus. We are, we are the creation of a God who rules and reigns and owns us and has the right to tell us how to live. And his name is Jesus. And we are called to complete obedience to Christ. Number two, though, God not only desires that we would live in complete obedience, obedience to him. God desires that we would live in complete confidence in him. Verse 13 says this, and we'll close. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Guys, remember this call to obey, to complete obedience. It's based on something, and it isn't your ability So as your heart is stirred in that moment to say, on the day I stand before Jesus and all my life is laid bare and I want it to show, I want it to display that I lived like Jesus is my Lord. The very worst thing you could do if that's being stirred in your heart is to roll up your sleeves, leave this room and get to work in your own strength trying to do the commands of God. We have a name for those kind of people. It's called Pharisees. And they're the ones who killed Jesus. They're the ones who did not bow before Christ as Lord because they wanted to fulfill the commands of God with self-confidence. And self-confidence is the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to. Guys, you remember remember teaching your kids how to ride a bike? You remember that? I'm far too out of shape to have young children. That's why God gives them to you when you're young, because you work a lot to train a kid to ride their bike. I watched Emily do it for all three of our kids, and it looked like it was one of the hardest things you could possibly do. And I'll never forget Emily running down the street um, with me videoing, 
as the kids are going down, and she's holding on to the back of their seat. And as she's holding on to the back of their seat, you know what she's doing, right? She's yelling, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, right? And then even before she's letting go of the seat, she's filling them up with self-confidence, right? She's going, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it, right? Did you guys, how did you guys do it? I don't know how else to train a kid to, to ride their bike. That's what she did. Go. And then she, she rolls them, and you know what they do? Go into the neighbor's bushes. It was awesome. It was awesome. They do a header over the handlebars. Cry. I never want to ride a bike again. So they're yelling. So here's what Emily's doing. This is what we as parents do. We're yelling. I'm, I'm back in the driveway. As far as they can go, I'm yelling out, you can do it. You can do it. You're doing it. You're doing it. And a lot of us, a lot of us, grew up in a Christianity that preached the gospel like that. You came to a place like this, and you had a guy like me who was pumping you up for the week ahead. You can do it. You can do it. You're doing it. You're doing it. Filling us with confidence to step out into obedience by our own power. And here's what you need to know. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is not how to be good little boys and girls where a teacher or our Lord says, you can do it, you can do it, you're doing it, you're doing it. It's you cannot do it. That's why you need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. Some of you are visiting and you you feel like Christianity is a bunch of hypocrites because all the Christians you've known are a bunch of broken, sinful people. Guys, that's consistent with our message That's all we are, a bunch of broken, weak, sinful people. Our claim is not that we are perfect. Our belief and our our joy is that Jesus is. We need Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel is this. We don't just need Jesus. We have him. When you trust in Christ, you're united to him and his power. And one of the reasons why God is right to call you to complete obedience is because he has supplied his capability, his power, his life, his own son by the spirit to live in you. And so the call of this text is yes, live in complete obedience with complete confidence in Jesus. His power is at work in you. And let me just ask you this. How capable do you think Jesus is of obeying the commands of the Bible? Pretty uh, perfect. (laughs) Completely. And that Jesus lives in you as you trust in Jesus. And what faith does is it takes that promise, this gospel promise, and it says in faith, grabbing hold of the truth. I know I can't, but I believe Jesus can in me and that he will. Think about when Jesus was standing on the water and he told Peter, hey, get out of the boat, Peter. Walk to me. Now, now Peter was a fisherman. He lived in a place like Merritt Island, surrounded by the beauty of water. He'd spent his entire life on the water Countless times, no doubt, he jumped out of a boat. And what do you think he did every time? Sunk like a rock. Do you think that Peter actually thought he could walk on water like Jesus? Think about it. In one way, he didn't. 
(laughs) Of course he did it. He knew it was impossible. But in another way, he absolutely did believe that he himself, Peter, the fisherman who'd sunk like a rock, because his name was Rock. That's probably why they gave him that name. (laughs) He could walk on water. Why? What happened? Listen to what Peter said. It gives us the secret. Matthew 14, 28 and 29. Peter and Jesus are there on the water. And Jesus is standing on the boat. Listen to what Peter says as he's sitting in the boat and Jesus is on the water. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me. Look at that phrase. Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Jesus said, come. Now, what was, what was that word? It was a command, right? So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Do you see it there? Peter knew the secret. He knew that if Jesus commands his people to do something, Jesus will use his power to make them able to do whatever he commands. And what faith does is it believes that about Jesus So faith becomes active. It steps out into obedience by being confident in Christ's power. So husbands, don't obey your wives. You may have some teachers telling you that. They're wrong. I just did like three minutes ago. So husbands, let me ask you this. What would it look like today if you were confident that Jesus would enable you to love your wife like Christ loved the church? And what if you stepped out in confidence in Jesus to obey that command? Wives, what would it look like if you were confident that Jesus would enable you to respect your husbands in honor of Christ? Children, what would it look like if you were confident that Jesus would enable you to remain to remain faithful in your parents' home and to honor your parents and do what they say even when you don't agree with what they say. Singles, what would it look like if you were confident that Jesus would enable you to remain pure in your minds and your actions before marriage? What would it look like if you were confident that Jesus would enable you to love your neighbor as yourself and do all things without murmuring or arguing like verse 14 commands? I think it's interesting that when this verse in the scripture says that you can do the impossible by the power of Jesus, the very next command is do nothing without mur- do everything without murmuring or complaining because it's impossible, Right? But he means it. Or rejoice in all things like Philippians 4 commands. Or be bold to tell others about Jesus like Acts 1-8 commands. Or give generously like 2 Corinthians 9 commands. Or be truthful in all things like Ephesians 4 commands. What would change about the way you live today and left this room if you were confident that Jesus himself would give you his ability to live the life that God has commanded you to live? Well, that's exactly what he's promised to do. And that's the salvation that Jesus offers. He saves us. In every way we need to be saved by his grace, by his work, by the power of Jesus as we trust in him. So church, hear the gospel this morning. Obey Jesus in all things at all times because it is God who's at work in you as you trust in Jesus and he's working in you a salvation that will work its way out of you in obedience as you trust in Jesus. So would you bow your heads and let's reflect on this truth with a word of prayer.
Some of you have never placed your faith in Jesus. And right now, you need to call on Jesus to save you. You've realized that in your sin, you have failed to live the life God has called us to live and that you cannot make yourself right. That's what you need, Jesus. Right now, would you call on Jesus in faith, trusting that he lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died. And as you believe him and depend on him, he'll raise you up to a brand new, abundant life by his power. Would you call on Jesus right now to save you? Some of you who are trusting in Jesus would say, I have called on Christ and you need to be obedient to Christ in baptism. You've never displayed the gospel of Jesus at work in you through the thing that Christ commanded to do just that. Do you commit to be obedient to your Lord in baptism? Some of you who've been following Jesus Right now, you need to pray the prayer, Jesus, change my heart. Because I desire things I shouldn't desire. Or I don't desire what I should the way that I should want it. Would you pray right now, Jesus, change my heart. Would you ask the Spirit to fill you with confidence in Jesus and his power to enable your obedience? And right now, would you give thanks? Would you thank God for saving you by his gracious power that it depends on him and not you? Thank him for his salvation in Christ. Father, I want to thank you for the gospel and for this vivid and full display in those two little verses. You are doing a work in us that will work through us and out of us by the power of Christ and the ministry of your spirit. And Lord, I pray that each of us would respond with faith today, believing the gospel in our lives. I pray for those whose desires, Father, their desires reflect the same desires of this world. Would you... Would you give them humble faith to bring that to you and ask you to change our hearts? Lord, as you're stirring us into clarity of what your word commands and calls us to do, would you give us confidence in Christ? Lord, I pray that there would be people who would step out of the boat today and into the place of obedience, not because they believe they're strong enough or able, but because they believe that Jesus is strong and able in them. And Father, may we live out the fullness of truth as we are confident in Christ and obedient to his every word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.